Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. But um, ultimately, I think some of this came from siding with my mom and you know, all the challenges we were all facing with the divorce, um, yeah, it, it turned out that all of a sudden I, I thought at one point that I had you know, a net worth of over $300,000 and I'm, I'm working towards becoming a millionaire and retiring at 26. All of a sudden I had nothing. And I had been building my life towards that. And I, I felt like it was taken away. And I felt betrayed, and I felt very lost. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do, moving forward. I didn't know uh, what my life meant, and I didn't really. It got to a point that, you know, the guys had been talking about the heist, and I just walked in to where Warren lived in the basement one day, and I said, "Fuck it, fuck it, I'll do it." That was Chaz Allen. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. In the past few weeks, a new film has begun to make waves across the country. It's called American Animals, and it's a retelling of the Transylvania book heist in which four college students attempted to steal first edition books and paintings priced at over $12 million. They didn't try stealing these rare pieces of art out of a museum or a a private collector's home, but instead out of their school's library. Here's a bit from the trailer. 
This library is home to the most valuable book in the United States. $12 million. You really need to see how easy this is going to be. Oh, you know this from all your previous heists? Can I just say how dumb this entire thing is? How do you know no one's going to get hurt? I don't want you waking up years from now wondering what could have happened and who you could have been. The film premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival to pretty favorable reviews, and as it keeps expanding across the country uh, throughout June and into July, I imagine the responses will continue to be positive. In the vein of something like I, Tanya, the film blends fact and fiction, narrative and documentary. What's unquestionably true is that um, this did happen to four kids in Lexington, Kentucky in 2004. And one of those kids, and I do want to keep emphasizing they were kids, was Chaz Allen, played in the film by Blake Jenner. Without ruining the ending of the film and, in turn, their real story, Chaz has since moved on from the incident and written a book. It's called Evolution, Becoming a Criminal. It's out next week, and he came on the show to not only talk about the book, but also the film adaptation. But beyond that, I met Chaz a few weeks ago at a Q&A for American Animals, where I was doing some moderation, and after talking to him for maybe two or three minutes, it became abundantly clear that while American Animals is faithful to what actually happened and is well-researched and meticulous, it can't possibly contain all the nuances of this crazy story. So, for the next hour, you're going to hear how four kids tried to rob their school's library and run away with $12 million worth of artwork. But before we get into the actual incident that inspired a movie, I wanted to understand Chaz's upbringing. At age 12, he started his own company. At 16, he began a real estate venture with his father. He came from wealth. He was ambitious. And so we begin by unpacking his life as a teenager. I did my best throughout this interview to reserve judgment, and uh, I hope you do too. So, finally, here is Chaz Allen. Um, here and there, sure. Um, I think I didn't really start going into that phase until I got a little bit older. And this kind of like idealistic life that I was, I was trying to build, mm. once that kind of started to crumble, right. that's, when, that's when I kind of started acting out. And yeah, my, my behavior changed and yeah, life changed. When does that start crumbling? Is that when you go to school and college? Um, so I, I actually, to rewind a little bit, um, I had kind of built on that, that kind of childhood. Um, idealism. Yeah. Idealism and pursuit of success by, um, by asking my dad if he would co-sign with me on, on an investment. Oh, so at 16, um, he, he agreed to co-sign and we went in 50, 50, 
the idea was, and this is, this is from a, a book I read as a kid. It's called uh, Creating Wealth by Robert G. Allen. And the idea is you buy two houses a year for 10 years. You use the, the collateral, use the first house as collateral for the second and on down the line. Right. At the end of 10 years, you sell off the first 10, you pay off the second 10, and then you own 10 properties free and clear and you're collecting the the rent money, and you you've built like a nice little uh, net worth. Mm. So at 26, I wanted to be retired. That was that was my dream. Wow, well, and 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 that's an ambitious dream. 26. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was a little far fetched. So what happens? You guys you guys buy some homes. So we did. Um, we bought our first home. It was a little home in Lexington on the outskirts of campus. Um, I also did appraisals at the time, so uh, I would appraise the property, and we found a house that- You were doing appraisals? You were 16. Yeah. Who the hell is listening to your appraisal? N- nobody. I couldn't, I couldn't actually turn it in. I could do the data processing ah, and the work, okay. but then only once I was 18 could it actually be submitted, Okay. and with like a, a journeyman license and all that kind of because stuff. Because I imagine like a 16-year-old you with some adults trying to buy a home, and you being like, no, this is actually, this is going to cost <laughs> this amount. And they're like, shouldn't you be in school right now? Yeah, shouldn't you be like playing sports or something? Um, <laughs> so you bought your first home? Yeah. So, so I bought my first home. Um, I was in business with my dad, and I was, I was so, so excited yeah. by that. Um, and by the time I was 18, we owned five properties together. Okay. Had you sold any of them? Uh, no. The idea was to keep them, have renters come in and pay the mortgage, and you know, solely be building equity, Yeah, which we were. And um, eventually, after I got out of college, the idea was that my dad would sign his 50% over to me, and that would be kind of like my, uh, my gift to move forward with my life after college. Fantastic. Yeah. So what happens at 18? You guys have five homes, you go to school. What's next? So I got a rude awakening to adulthood uh, the day after my 18th birthday. Um, I had a very close friend die in a car wreck. Uh. And shortly after that, about two months after that, my parents went through divorce. And through that, that process and during that time, I had, a, I had a lot of pain that I was going through that I just didn't know how to express. And I didn't really have a healthy, a healthy outlet for it. Uh-huh. Um, and due to... Now, were you upset with... Um... Your parents splitting up because you thought they shouldn't be splitting up? Um, no, I, I thought it was okay for them to split up, but the way that they split up, it was, it was very, very ugly. Right. And they fought tooth and nail. And I felt like, um, as like a little man, I felt like I had to defend my mom. Right. And it just, it got really, really ugly. Mm. How did your dad feel about you defending your mom? Um, he, he was not, he was not okay with it. <laughs> he was not okay with it. Uh, you know, he felt, he felt uh, justified in his own actions. 
And, you know, as a kid, you know, I really, I really didn't have any business getting involved. But then ultimately I, I became involved because I was financially and I was in business with then, my dad at the time. Right. So that gets to be a, uh, a sticky situation. It was sticky and it drug on for a long time and it was, it was really hurtful. Um, and I, I didn't feel like I could go to either one of my parents for support. And uh, my family was well known in the community. So the, the divorce was also very well known. Mm. And were people picking sides? Uh, definitely, definitely picking sides. Yeah. And I felt embarrassed and I felt ashamed of what they were going through. And, you know, people I felt were looking at me different. So, um, yeah, my, my definition of what, what I thought was okay started to shift. What does that mean? I started, I started acting out. You know, you asked when, when I started getting into trouble. Right. And this was kind of the age that that, that started happening. So you're, at, you're, you're in college now. End of high school, you know, my senior year of high school is when mm. all this started to happen. Right, right, right. And then, yeah, after... Which is a very easy year of school anyway. Yeah, yeah. You're coasting yeah. by that point. Big coasting. So instead of uh, coasting and having fun, your parents are splitting up and your best friend uh, has passed away. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about your friend passing away? What did you make of that happening? Were you... Were you scared were you angry were i was you... angry um you know i grew up catholic and you know I, I was dealing with a lot of issues of you know why why would such a bad thing happen to a good person and i was angry at god mm. and i i lashed out and i didn't know how to how to express what i was going through in mm. any other way than anger how did you lash out i used to box at the time. I, I got in fights, you know, mm. and ordinarily I wouldn't get in fights. What else did you do? Is that, is that really it? Uh, no, no. So I, I started getting involved in more criminal behavior mm -hmm. and I, I actually took place in, in a robbery or took part, excuse me, I took part in a robbery um, that, that I go into greater detail in my book so the early rumblings of this heist that is now a movie yes. starts at age 18. Yes. Now, the movie, I think, is very different from your reality. So I want to get the bare bones facts of this correct. Sure. I want to get sure. it all right. Tell me um, the first time you heard of their plan to steal the artwork. The first time I heard about it was at a place called Tolly Ho, in Lexington. It's like a little campus, all night kind of breakfast, drinks kind of place. And Eric actually told me what what Warren and, and Spencer had kind of been planning. And he told me that Warren had gone to Amsterdam mm -hmm. to to meet with this black market buyer. And there was an offer of $12 million dollars for this this one collection of of rare books and paintings right. by John James Audubon called Birds of America. Hmm. Do you believe he went to Amsterdam? 
At this point in my life, no. So even at even at eighteen, did, at eighteen, did you think he went? At eighteen, I was very skeptical. Right. And I pushed him on it and questioned him about it, and he, he insisted he that he did. Didn't he not have a passport? So, <laughs> at the time, I remember him saying that he had a forged passport. Mm. Those usually go well. I would think so. This was after nine eleven. Um, the, the airport security had definitely Ramped heightened. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, especially being 14 years removed now, I yeah. look back and I just don't see that as realistic. You think it's all. bullshit? I think so. Okay. Um, I'll use that word. You don't have to. Yes, though, <laughs> though, you can, though you can curse on here. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you appreciate that you can curse on here. Anytime. I got your back. So, um, you're 18. They tell you about this. A student, a fellow student of yours, has gone to Amsterdam mm-hmm. to meet with a um, a wealthy, affluent uh, buyer of art. Yes. And you're like, uh, sure, sign me up for this. No, no. So when I first heard about it, I, I laughed. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. No, that's that's stupid. You're you're probably gonna get caught. Don't don't do that. And how was Warren at that time? Um, he was very interested in it. He he saw it as very possible, and he was he was slowly but surely taking steps towards achieving this this thing. Why was he so fixated? Do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I can't answer for him. I can only speak from my perspective. But um, I I think he I know he was going through a lot of things in his own life. And he was he was always like the class clown kind of person, and he would he would act out and he would do anything to take like a an awkward or challenging situation and make it funny, mm. and like you know find find a way to laugh at ridiculous things. Right. So I think um, I think he was going through a lot, and I think he was he was looking for some kind of escape or a way to change his reality. Of the four of you, were you the most skeptical of the plan? I would say absolutely, yeah. But they've also they brought you in because they thought you had money, right? Yeah, yeah. And we were you know, three of us grew up together for the most part from like high school on. And they were they were close friends and two of them were actually living in in one of my houses. At the oh. time, so and we were all roommates, um, so we were we were pretty close at the time. So like when they were going through this, these early stages of planning, and they were looking to include somebody, I think I was kind of just an obvious choice. Like, right. Well, let's let's see if right, let's see if he will. And when did the switch turn for you? When when were you like, okay, I guess I'll do this. So, it's it's when. My own dreams uh, and everything that I was kind of hoping for for the future. When, when I realized it, it was all a lie. What was a lie? The ten homes and retiring at twenty six. Well, that was that was a little bit far reaching, but um, I had I'd based my life on on that goal, and I had turned down scholarships for college. Uh, I chose to stay home, and you know, be close to my family and. Mm you know, 
through the divorce kind of help with all that. Um, and, and trying to, to actually follow through with this, this plan of buying the houses and then selling them and, you know, paying them off and being this, this property owner. But the term lie, what, what is the lie here? So what ended up happening, my dad, through the, the divorce, he actually refinanced all the properties mm. and eventually sold all the properties. And since I was underage when we started, right, he was the managing director of the, the LLC. It was called CTA Investments because we both share the same name, uh, Charles Thomas Allen Investments. Ah. And, you know, I'm sure he, he had his own reasons and he, he had his own fears that he was grappling with and he was doing what he thought he needed to do to survive. But um, ultimately, I think some of this came from siding with my mom and, you know, all the, all the, the challenges we were all facing with the divorce. Um, yeah, it, it turned out that all of a sudden I, I thought at one point that I had you know, net worth of over $300,000 and I'm, I'm working towards becoming a millionaire and retiring at 26. Um, all of a sudden I had nothing and I had been building my life towards, towards that. And I, I felt like it was taken away and I felt betrayed and I felt very lost. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do moving forward. I didn't know uh, what my life meant and I didn't really, it got to a point that, you know, the guys had been talking about the heist and I got to a point that I just walked in to where Warren lived in the basement one day and I said, fuck it, fuck it, I'll do it. And I felt like I was at a point that I didn't really care if we got away with it or we got caught, I just wanted things to change. Wanted something else. Anything else. Anything else. Um, I, I, I was really, really going through a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, and I just didn't feel like I had anyone to turn to. Mm -hmm. You weren't seeing anyone at the time? I was, but that's, that's a lot. For you know, I had a, a girlfriend that was my high school sweetheart. You know, we had been through a lot together, but uh, I think even that that was too much for her to bear. Too much for her to bear. So we would go through breakups and makeups and all that kind of stuff. But I felt really alone, alone, eighteen and uh, scared. Yeah, and I felt disconnected from you know everybody else that was. On the college campus, you know, I was kind of in the whole fraternity scene and everybody else is going around with easy money and everything is coming easy, which I was used to. And all of a sudden, I just, I didn't have that. Mm. And I didn't really know um, where I fit in, what I was going to do next in my life. Right. I was just, I was really lost and confused. Why do you think money was such a uh, indicator 
of being a happy, okay person in the world for you? It's, I see things so differently now, but um, that's, that's all I knew. You know, I was, I was raised that way, and that was definitely a measure of success. Right. And, you know, now I just I don't agree with that at all. Because, mm, you know, there will be some people that hear this and think, you know, you know a violin will be playing because an 18-year-old didn't have $300,000, yeah. <laughs> and it's how sad. I know. It's, it's ridiculous, and it's, it's really off-skew and off-base from reality, but... But it was um, your reality in the moment, which I don't, which is yeah. why I don't think it's fair to call it ridiculous. I don't think it's ridiculous. I think it was what was happening to you. It was what was happening. And it's and all you knew. It was all I knew. Um, yeah, I had based everything up to that point in my life on, on these things that I thought were real and important and meaningful. And yeah, when it shifted, I just didn't really know what to think. Mm. So what happened? Day one of working on the heist project, you say yes? So I said yes, and I think once I agreed to be part of it, I took a really hard look at what they were doing, and you know, I just said a lot of things. I don't, I don't think that's, that's going to work. Was it clear that it was um, amateurish? Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of notes written on notebook paper and rough sketches and drawings and kind of outrageous ideas that, you know, the film kind of touches on that there's these kind of schemes taken from crime movies, mm. you know? So that, that was kind of the foundation. But then once, once it actually got into the planning, which I was only involved for maybe a month and a half, maybe two months before the actual heist. Right. It was it was approached much differently, uh-huh. very differently, because all the things that you see in movies it doesn't really apply in real life. You know, and once you actually um, have to do it, it's very kind of like you, you take the the lofty ideas of like crawling through the rafters or like swinging in through the windows or rappelling down the walls. Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. What happens in crime is people run in, they grab the stuff and they run out. You know, that's realistic. That's what happens. Right. So the, the plan started to shift into a much more realistic, this is what it's going to take to Mm -hmm. get to get these books in this case. Were the four of you having a good time creating this plan? Um, I wasn't. Um, I felt I felt a sense of connection. Like I felt like it was okay to be who I was with these guys because we had kind of formed this bond on this thing that no one else knew about. And I felt a sense of connection that I just felt I was... I was missing in other areas of my life. But uh, to say it was fun, no, I wasn't having any fun. You weren't having fun? No. Were the others? I think maybe at times. Mm. Maybe at times, but I think... um, Was it stressful? It was stressful. Yeah, it was a stressful time. Um, You know, even even for the other guys. And it's, it's a hard thing to do if you actually, like, choose to do such a thing every day is filled with like oh my god like 
am I really? Are you really gonna do? Am this? I really gonna do this thing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it was a pretty stressful time. There were moments of of laughter and fun and whatever, but it was more it was more stressful. Um, there was a lot of fear mm. at the time. Did you guys talk yourselves out of doing it a bunch? We we found excuses to be like, well, you know, it's it's okay. Maybe we just shouldn't do it. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we just leave it alone. And then there was always something else that would like propel it forward. What do you mean? Um, those excuses somehow they're they weren't really a a barrier to prevent it from actually happening. Mm. Uh, like for example, the the idea of someone subduing the librarian. You know, when that came up, I was like, well, if we can't do it without in any way kind of uh, subduing her or without causing her any harm, mm-hmm. then we just won't do it. And then, you know, eventually as the, the film shows as well, Warren makes that hard choice. Like, well, fuck it, I'll do it. And it's like, well, that excuse to not do it is no longer there. Because he's going to take care of it. Because he's going to do it. Yeah. So walk me through um, the morning of the crime you wake up do you not sleep the night before i don't think i slept much no the morning of the the actual heist i remember going to my mom's house i picked up the van so my my aunt was actually selling that van out of state the same day Mm. so it was kind of serendipitous that there was this getaway car that could be used we switched the license plates. Incredible. And then it would, the same day, three hours later, be in another state. So I went to my mom's house, picked up the van, and kind of rushed out of there. Did your parents have any idea what you were doing? No. Um, you know, my mom tried to reach out a couple times. She could tell I was going through something that that I wouldn't share with her. Mm-hmm. And she she pleaded with me to to just open up and share, and I just I just wouldn't. Yeah, wouldn't do it. Nope. So you pick up the van, you drive. Picked up the van, drove, switched the license plate, and picked up the other guys. I picked up Eric and Warren, and Spencer was meeting us there because he was the he was the lookout. So. We, we drive to Transylvania. There's a parking spot right next to the emergency exit door. So we, we park there. Warren goes in first. And, which, by the way, he, he wasn't supposed to bring a taser. Mm. And that was a, that was a big disagreement um, the four of us had. And he had actually broken his hand. The week before. Doing what? Uh, I think he was in a bicycle accident. Somebody ran into him with their car. And he had broken his hand. And the day of the heist, he actually cut off his cast. And he felt like he wouldn't be able to to actually restrain her if if necessary. Mm. So he, he ended up... Bringing a taser. Bringing a taser. And did you see the taser? 
Um, no, I don't remember seeing the taser. I remember Eric choosing not to bring one. Mm-hmm. Because he went in second. Right. Um, the one thing I want to I want was interested in mm-hmm. is the three of you are in the car, and you yeah. pull up to this parking spot. Yeah. What is the conversation? Do you guys silent? Is it dead silent in the car? It was pretty silent. Yeah. Um, I don't remember us talking much at all. Um, I think we were, we were nervous, but for some reason I, I felt resolved. It was a, it was a weird kind of feeling. I felt, um, it, it felt almost like I was, I was swimming in water. For some reason, I, it was like an out-of-body experience. Really? Yeah. You felt um, like you were swimming in water. Yeah. It was like feeling disconnected from... From the reality. From the real world, yeah. Okay. You're in another spot. Yeah. Yeah. A whole other headspace mm. and mindset, yeah. What are you doing or thinking about when you're in the car waiting for them upstairs? Just watching. Watching and be like, oh, shit, am I really doing this thing? Am I, am I really doing this? Should I just drive away now? If I just drive away, then you know, nothing, nothing happens. I'm, I'm out of here. Um, <clears throat> but then you wouldn't be leaving them. But then I would be leaving them, and you know, ultimately, I, I chose to stay, and I just waited and I watched. How long were you waiting for? So Eric went in second. He went in shortly after, and then he went and waited in the library. Um, it was a long time. I mean, I think. The idea was to be in and out in maybe five minutes. I think it ended up being closer to 30 minutes total. And then after a long period of wondering, you know, did they get caught? You know, did something happen? What's going on in there? And Spencer watching from across campus. So I actually, I had the rear gate of the van open, assuming that they would just like kind of casually walk out and drop these these huge elephant folio books of paintings into the back of the van and we'd casually drive away right so what actually happened was nothing close to that um they i'm watching in the rearview mirror and eric and warren come flying out of the the emergency exit door kick the back door open run out and they've got these backpacks on and they don't have the big books, the Audubons. Yeah. And Did they actually drop those big books in the... So they actually dropped them, but there was the second librarian. She was chasing after them and had actually grabbed one of their shoulders. So in order to, to save themselves, they had to drop the books. So this woman was actually chasing Eric. So Warren took off from the emergency exit, instead of running towards the van, um, he took off into the heart of campus, just running. I don't know where he was running. Why was he doing that? I have no idea. He was just, he was going in the wrong direction. I'm sure after what he had just been through and experienced and did, he was, he was literally out of his mind. Right. So then, uh, I jump out of the car. I slam the, the rear gate to the van, put the van in reverse and, this woman is so close to, to Eric that I have to drive forward for him to create distance between him and her so that he can jump in the side door of the van, peel out. Uh, I'm going around the horseshoe parking lot of the, the campus. What, what was she saying? 
I don't remember her her saying anything other than, you know, stop, you know, somebody stop them. You know, just very, all I remember is very generic right. statements. Um, I just remember her being very angry, looking wild, and just I'm sure wildly chasing after this van. I'm seeing it in the rearview mirror. So terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. So as we're driving around the the parking lot, we pull alongside Warren. And no, I didn't hit him with the car, but he was just running, running like a wounded gazelle just in the wrong direction. And we're shouting at him, hey, get in the van. You know, what's wrong with you? Get in the van. And then he kind of snaps too, and he dives in the van. And then we uh, pull into traffic, and then we're weaving through traffic. Um, I'm driving like a crazy person. And we're all screaming at each other because the books have been dropped. Um, Warren ended up, um, he threw up. He threw up outside the van. He threw up like he rolled down the window and just vomited. Um, then as we're screaming and flying through traffic, um, we realized that they dropped the big books, but they did actually get away with um, several other books. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, an illuminated manuscript from the 1400s, that it was it was an incredible thing. It had been passed down from king to king, yeah. and eventually here. Um, what else? Some sketches by John James Audubon, uh, medical dictionaries that belonged to Thomas Jefferson. So we ended up driving away with some pretty rare and valuable books. Aren't you missing a kid? Spencer, he was, he was the lookout. Lookout. But but you pick him up, don't you? No. He just, he stayed, he stayed hidden. Right. Yeah. And he saw all of this from afar. Yeah. Yeah. That had to be bizarre. Just, just watching. Just watching that. So then you guys are driving off to New York. Yes. Yes. Eventually. Um, there was a point where we drove to, to a spot and I kicked him out of the car so that did happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, uh, because at that point, um, it was such a, it was such a hasty exit out of there. You know, it, nothing went as planned. So I knew that the police would be, would be looking for us. They'd be looking for a gray van with three people in it and actually in possession of these books. So, kick them out of the van. They hide out there in the area. I go swap the cars. I took my aunt's van back to my mom's. I remember actually taking a hose real quick and spraying down the van because it had vomit all down the side. And people were coming to pick this thing up like within an hour. So I did that. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Hosing down the van is really, I mean... What what is on your mind at that point? Like hosing this van down in the middle of a heist when you're supposed to be going to New York? <laughs> it was a it was a mad rush, and I didn't know what was going through my mind. I just knew I had to get back and pick them up as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. So I went and picked them up, and then uh, drove back to the house. And I remember watching the news reports that night, 
And I actually remember after I kind of felt some semblance of, of like, okay, at least we're, we're safe. Uh, when, I, when is that? That was when things kind of calmed down. We saw the news. I saw that they didn't really have any, any leads at the yeah. time. And I went to, I went to my mom's house and just kind of hung out with her and my little brother and sister. And I'm sure I wasn't present at all, but, um, it just felt good to be, to be with them. Yeah. yeah. And then you have to pick them up though. So eventually I went back later that night and Warren lets us know that the, the Amsterdam buyer, he contacted him by email and the Amsterdam buyer backed out. So all of a sudden we have all this stuff yeah. and he, he claims that the Amsterdam buyer had only agreed to buy that one collection of books, Birds of America by John James Audubon. And we didn't have any of those. Mm. So the buyer backed out and now we were stuck with all this stuff on our hands and no idea what to do with it. Right. Not good. Not good. <laughs> so the no. plan was to go to New York and find someone there to buy it. Well, that's, that's where we really started to get, to disagree. And I really felt how much on the outside I was of, of the group because, um, the three of them kind of all agreed that, you know, we should, we should take these books and get them appraised by Christie's auction house. And my family owning an auction house at the time, which is called Thompson and Riley, I was very familiar with the appraisal process. And I knew that the first thing that the appraiser would do is they would research where these books were last sold and for how much. Right. So it would obviously trace us back to Transylvania. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I vehemently disagreed with that plan. And you told them how the appraisal process works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, straightforward, just like we're talking now. And... They were insistent that there's this whole thing called private sector sales and you sign a non-disclosure agreement and Christie's legally can't, can't share anything with law enforcement. Well, that goes, goes out the window when you're doing something illegal. So I was, <laughs> I was trying to say that and right. uh, the conversation got very heated. We almost got to the point of fistfights mm. multiple times. Yeah, because even though I I wanted things to change, you still go into like a a survival mode and you're you're like defending your life. Right. Is there any moment where you think, you know what, I'm just gonna not do this with you guys, I'm out. I actually did. Um once they chose to go to Christie's, I actually like washed my hands of it and I said, you know what, you guys can do that. I'm not gonna have any part of it. Um Eventually, I I agreed to go along with them. Why did you do that? Because I'd never been to New York. Oh my god! And, and you were like, "This is the time to visit New York." Ooh. Finally, gotta go to the Big Apple. <laughs> Here we go. Oh my god! Um, it actually felt mostly like um, an escape. Well, an escape, but um, damage control. It was like at least if I'll be there. 
you know, maybe I can prevent them from doing something like really catastrophic. Mm -hmm. So I went along, but. So do you guys go to New York that same day? It was, I want to say like two days after. It was like it was very quick after. So you guys are in Lexington with all these books. Yeah. Aren't they looking around for someone in Lexington with the oh, stuff? Of course. Of course. Yeah. How do you guys go out that day? I don't think you go outside, right? I th I think we did. Yeah, I think we just continued carrying on life as usual. Right. So in that drive to New York, is there a sense that this is not going to work out? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, for me, it was like an impending doom kind of feeling. Like, it's definitely going to fail. I thought maybe there's a chance. Um, maybe there's a chance it won't. Because up to that point, um, they had made all communications with, you know, from a payphone, from public terminals uh, for the emails, you know, with fake IDs and um, for the most part disguises. But I thought as long as they didn't, you know, give up any revealing information, okay, it should be fine. Hopefully they'll just go in there and get out of there. I thought maybe they would be on camera. Right. So probably definitely on camera, definitely on camera. Yeah. So, um, you know, those were things I was trying to kind of warn them, um, before going in, you know, but in my mind, I would kind of already been like, well, this is you guys, like you guys are choosing to do this. I'm not taking part in this. Right. But that's, that's not the truth of it. Like I was, you were I was there. there and I was involved. And I was, you drove. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. It's tough. Um, yeah. So then after that, once we got back from New York, um, now hold on before, oh, before, yeah. before, before we get there, okay. they go up to, to this private buyer in New York. So it was actually the appraiser who was willing to help find a buyer. Great. And in the film, Spencer gives this woman and this reputable organization, his cell phone number, that is his cell phone number. Yeah. Does, yeah. Is that what actually happened? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Um, they came back to the hotel room where uh, Eric and I were waiting. And they came back and they were all excited that, you know, it went great. They loved the books. Um, they're going to help us find a buyer. Yeah. Of course they love the books. Yeah. They're amazing. They're incredible things. So, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they liked gold. Uh, yes. Yeah. They wanted the gold. Yeah. <laughs> they were confused why these children had it. Had these books. I think yeah. they knew right away that these were stolen. I, I have a feeling. I would think so. Um, come to find out later, I don't think Christie's actually reached out to the FBI. Oh. It was the opposite way around. But so Spencer says to the four of you, I gave her my cell phone number. Well, I was asking them for the details, like beyond their excitement. You know, I was pushing them for information. Oh, okay, so there's there's a buyer. Okay, or they might help us find a buyer. You know, great. So how how are they going to contact us? And they just kind of paused and said, well, they're going to they're gonna call Spencer's phone. What? What do you, they're going to call Spencer's phone, the phone in his pocket? Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with that? And then I, I flipped out and I 
yelled for Spencer to like pull out his phone. And, you know, I called his phone and put it on speaker so that we could all hear his voicemail. And it, it said, hey, this is Spence, leave it. And I was like, does that sound like a fucking... Um, Someone who's selling you uh, origin of species? Yeah, no, no. So, um, yeah, I, I lost it. Um, all the, the buildup of, of the fighting and the tension that we had amongst our group, I lost it. And I had brought a gun with me to New York, which, I mean, now I realize how insanely stupid that is to even have a gun right. in New York. But I was kind of raised that way to travel with a weapon, you know, in case something happens. I don't know. It's, it's a mindset I grew right, up right, with. Right. But um, so I actually pulled out the gun and you know, I was screaming at them that I don't care what they have to do. Even if they have to go back into Christie's and rob the place, they have to get that number back because that number is going to get us caught. Right. So, and yeah, I was, I was really, really upset at them. Um, what did, what and did, I was also, how did they feel about it? Uh, they, I think they felt chastised and they felt, um, kind of like, oh shit, we probably shouldn't have done that. Um, and that was kind of like that moment was kind of the end of our friendship. And that's where I really just kind of let them know how, how I really feel, um, how mad I was at them, but also how mad I was at myself for even, even being involved with it, for right. being friends with them at the time. I just, yeah. That was the breaking point. That was the breaking point. And I have to say, um, in the film, you know, Blake Jenner and I never got to, to meet, to talk before the film, and you know, seeing him portray that scene, he's just, he's brilliant. He just... He nails it. Was there a sense in that hotel when you're yelling at them about the number that it was the beginning of the end? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I knew it was all over. It was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time. So you go back to Lexington? Go back to Lexington. The ride home, it was a very somber, quiet, depressing ride. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Not much to talk about. Not much to talk about. No. Um, is there is there another conversation about another seller to just get rid of the books? What you know? What is the yeah. plan here? Driving back. What so, are you going to do with all these books? So after that, it it really we were looking over our shoulders and wondering like when when is the pendulum going to fall? When are we actually going to get arrested? But still, Hank, like clinging on to a little bit of hope. That um, you know, maybe it won't. You know, maybe there's a chance we could find another buyer or, you know, leave town, move away. But the FBI was actually they had tapped our phones, they were following us, and it was truly only a matter of time. When did they start doing that? So I think I think it was probably about a month after the actual heist. Right. Um, you know, what's crazy is that this is um, post 9-11. So what year is this again? Is it 2004? It's 2004, yeah. This is going to sound silly to say, and we're on a podcast, so I can say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
it sounds like you guys totally could have got away with it if the circumstances were a little, if the details were a little different and you actually had a buyer, that it took them a month to track you down. That would never happen now. It would be within, no. within 24 hours, you would have been gone. Done. 100% done. Yeah. I mean, the the level of interconnectedness that everything has now. Yeah, there's no way. Like, back then, there were no smartphones, like to put it in perspective. Right. I think they had just come out with the Sprint flip phone that you could take a picture. Yeah. You know, no texting. People weren't texting. It was, a, it was weirdly um, pre-technology in a way that would get you caught. Absolutely. Now it'd be like, oh, it, it was them. Yeah, it, it was no it was chance. Them. Let's go get them. Uh, the, the the fact that it took a month is mind-boggling to me, and also, I'm I'm surprised you guys didn't do something with the stuff in that month. Like you're yeah. sitting in Lexington, you know, it's not gonna go well. No. So in my mind, I had kind of already separated myself from from them and the whole situation. Um, Did you think about just leaving the country? I thought about moving moving to, to Charleston, South Carolina. It's a place I'd grown grown up and like gone in the summers and whatever. And, and I thought about like crossing the border to Canada and finding another buyer. But I have to say, um, I'm really glad I didn't. Right. And... Did, yeah. the, did the four of you speak in that month before getting caught? Um, we did. We we all, except for Spencer. Spencer lived in the Transylvania dorms, and the three of us lived in that house together. <sighs> so, like, we saw each other on a daily basis. But, um, yeah, it was, it was really tense. Um, I especially, I kind of, I became a recluse and just kind of stayed in my bedroom, spent a little bit of time with my, my girlfriend at the time. Did she know about this? No, no. She didn't know anything. No, nothing. And that's that was that was a a tough thing at that time. Like really compartmentalizing my life and you know hiding the truth of who I was and what I was doing is just is no good. What do you remember about the night of the FBI coming in? So, my girlfriend, um, we had kind of had a, a coming back together during that time. And for the first time in a while, we, we spent a really good night together. And then I remember falling asleep really late, you know, three o'clock in the morning. And then five o'clock in the morning, we wake up to this loud sound. And she's, she's in the bed next to me and she's screaming, Chaz, Chaz, there's somebody in the house. So I wake up and I'm trying to wipe the, the sleep out of my eyes. And I hear all this commotion and banging and people moving around and I had a a knife in my nightstand. It was like an old trench knife from World War One. Right. Like an auction house collectible thing. So I picked that up and I'm standing in my boxers and it's pitch black and I'm on the top floor in the house so I can hear all the commotion below. And I I just know there's a lot of people down there. So I drop the knife and I run over to my closet where I would keep the gun. So I grab the gun and I turn on the light and I'm listening and it's just getting louder and more violent and doors are banging open and people are yelling. And I see, I see my girlfriend and she's sitting upright in the bed and she's just, she's just 
bawling, crying in fear. And I yell for her to, to come get in the closet. And I, I tell her to hide there. No matter what happens, no matter what you hear, just, just stay in here. And I made her promise me. And we kissed and I said, I love you. And I didn't know if it was going to be for, for the last time. I didn't, I didn't know. But she promised to stay there. And then I ran over to the top of the staircase that led straight into my room. There was a little door at the bottom landing of the stairs. And someone was banging the butt of a shotgun on the wood of the door. And I'm standing there in a three-point stance with you know, nothing but my boxers and this little two, two-shot Derringer. <laughs> did you think it was someone breaking into your house? I did, yeah. Yeah, there had been home invasions like in the neighborhood, like down around campus. And there was actually one where... Um, a guy and his his girlfriend or wife, uh, they were tied up, robbed, and the woman was actually raped, like in front of the guy. Uh, and it, it had been on the news at the time, and like that was kind of flashing through my mind, like I will never let that happen. So I was holding the gun, knowing that I might have to pull the trigger. Mm. So this guy's banging on the door and screaming for me to open the door. And I'm like, I'm not going to open the door. Why would, I, why would I do that? So finally he breaks through the door and I see a hand reach through. It's a gloved hand and he undoes the lock and pushes the door open. And this, this huge guy walks into the landing and I aim the gun at his head. And he kind of looks up out of the corner of, of his eye and he sees that I, I'm pointing a gun straight at his face. And thankfully I didn't pull the trigger, but I yelled the only thing that came to mind from like watching TV and movies. I yelled, freeze! <laughs> and he didn't freeze. Um, he turned all the way around and looked at me, and that's when I saw FBI, and that's when I froze. And I literally, I went, I went blank. Time didn't slow down, it stopped. Um, I just, I couldn't even move, I couldn't react, I couldn't think. And then he swung the, the shotgun up to face me. And I don't know how he didn't pull the trigger, but thankfully he, he didn't shoot. And then him and his team, they, they ran up the stairs and I kind of slowly dropped the gun to my side. They knocked the gun out of my hand, grabbed me, threw me on the ground, jumped on my back, handcuffed me. And then that's when the, the special agent like in charge of the, the task force, he came up and talked to me and I asked if I could at least put on some clothes. And they, they uncuffed me and allowed me to put on some clothes and uh, recuffed me and started walking me down the stairs, and that's when I, that's when I saw my girlfriend come out of the closet, and she saw the truth of who I was. Uh, did you guys make eye contact? Oh yeah, yeah. It still breaks my heart to this day. Cause you felt like you disappointed her. Yeah, I disappointed her, and her, her whole world 
you know, that, that same sense of like trust and belonging and hope for a future that, that I had seen and turned out to be a lie, you know, then in turn, she, I think, felt the same way about me. So going to jail was a different kind of divorce for her? For sure. Yeah. Uh, she, she tried to hang in there for maybe two or three weeks after everything, but the crime was very public and um, it was all over the news and I, I, was, I was ashamed, I was embarrassed. I didn't feel like um, I had anything to say for what I did because I was just plain wrong. Mm. And, you know, we broke up through that time and it was, it was 11 months until sentencing. And, you know, I felt, I felt completely alone. A lot of people that were really close friends at the time, uh, I don't think they really kn- knew how to respond to it or deal with it. But, um, you know, eventually I, I spent a lot of time with family and friends that I grew up with. And it was almost like um, walking to my own funeral, you know, going in for sentencing and ultimately prison. Right. What do you remember about the first night of prison? So (laughs) walking into prison, I actually didn't get into general population for about five days. So I was in solitary confinement. And that's, for those who don't know, that's, that's the hole. Actually, before, let's back it up. What was your official sentence? So my official sentence, um, you know, all four of us, was 87 months. Seven years and three months in federal prison. For each of you? For each. Right. Yeah. And that was at the age of 20 when we were sentenced. 19 when, for some of us, I was 19 um, during the crime. Right. And um, did you guys have... Good attorneys? Did each of you have different attorneys, I imagine? So, yeah, we actually had, each of us had our own attorneys and representatives. Um, I, I felt like my attorney was, was really good, and he, he did his best. And I think overall the judge was, she heard both sides, and I, I think she was pretty fair. Mm. What did the attorney say to you before sentencing? What were the conversations you two were having? Um, the conversations were, they were hopeful. Uh, we all pled guilty uh, in acceptance of responsibility. And due to that, you get a little bit of reduction in time. And we didn't have a trial by jury since we all agreed that, yes, we are guilty. Yes, we did this thing. So we kind of threw ourselves onto the mercy of the court. And we had a trial by judge. So there were a few stipulations, like the actual the use of the stun gun, the stun pen, that um, whether or not is it is it a deadly weapon, and ultimately it was we were charged as if it was a deadly weapon um, because it's capable of inflicting uh, serious bodily harm. Right. So how much time did that add? Uh, that added another like two to four more years on the sentencing guideline. And then my attorney was trying to say that since I didn't actually use that, since I wasn't the one who, who did that, um, that I shouldn't be charged and you know, serve that time too. But uh, the judge ruled that under conspiracy, we're all just as culpable. Right. 
So first night of prison, you're in solitary confinement for five days. So the first five nights, you're yeah. alone. Day six, you're yeah. in general population. What happens? Well, first of all, in um, solitary confinement going in, I had no idea what to expect of prison. So I walk in, they lock me in this room, which is the size of a small bathroom, two bunk beds, a little shower, yeah, shower in the corner of the room, no curtain, a little sink and toilet, like aluminum sink and toilet, and like a small wedge of a concrete desk. It's about a foot, maybe two feet. Um, and I thought, shit, this is it. I've got seven years in this room. How am I going to do that? Right. Like, wh what do I do? So I just sat there and I, I, <laughs> I tried to, I tried to find a way to like come to grips with my reality. And then on the last day, I got a roommate, uh, a Sally, and he came in. I guess he had been on a, a medical trip, and he came back in. And he was just spending the night, and he was going to go back to general population. So. I'm asking him questions. I'm like, man, how do you do this? How do you live in this room forever? Like, what do you, what do you do? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is the hole. There's, there's general population. I'm going to be out there tomorrow. Whoa. Okay. Okay. So that's on the fifth, sixth day. That's where they took me. Right. And that, that was a scary, that was a scary situation. You know, at the time, I had just turned, it was two, two weeks after my 21st birthday when I walked into prison. So I was a, a skinny white kid walking into a grown man's world. And I was in there for seven years. I was going to have to find a way to make it work. Yeah. So I didn't know. I How didn't, was that first year? Uh, the first year was tough because you're not... You don't really adjust to it yet. You're still in resistance to your reality. Right. You know, and you're thinking, oh, I'll file something in the court and, you know, hopefully we'll win an appeal. And it just, it's very, very, very unlikely. So um, it was really in the second year that I came to acceptance that this is where, where I live. My mail comes here. I now have friends here. Like, this is... This is my reality. What was a day in the life like? Um, a day in the life. <laughs> so I, I made sure that I had a job that didn't really require me to, to work that much. Everyone in there is, is forced to get a job if they're physically able. Um, so I became an orderly. And that allowed me time to read, to study, to write, that's that's kind of where I, I learned to write. So yeah, day in the life, I it it changes so much because I I would move to one one unit and you're always you're always being shifted around or you know you can never count on anything being stable in there. So I'll give you a, a glimpse of you know one day in the life that I remember. Um, I would wake up. I would have a responsibility to like clean this area. Um, and then I would pass out chemicals to the other inmates for their jobs. And I would keep tabs on what was given, 
what was received back and forth. And then um, I would spend spend my time reading and writing, working on the very, very early stages of my book. I would then, there would be lunch. I would go to the chow hall, eat a little bit. Um, the food's kind of hard to digest, but um, I would pick and choose what I wanted, try to make the best of it. Um, hard to digest, meaning it's bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. It's, I don't know if it's, um, I don't know, by the FDA standards, if it's like fully edible and healthy, but it's, it's rough. So I would do that and I, I would try to cook my own food when I could uh, from the commissary. I would get a little bit of time to, to work out. I would play sports. They have a lot of like rec leagues and things like that. Basketball, softball, volleyball, soccer. You know, a lot of, a lot of prison for me was a lot of boredom with a search to make my time meaningful and productive. Yeah. Tough. It's tough, but, um, you know, all the, all the crazy things, the violent things um, that you see in TV and movies, they all happen. They don't happen as frequent as you would imagine. You know, most of the time it's a regular day um, with people just trying to move forward with their lives, each in their own way. But um, yeah, every now and then someone would get a lock in a sock to the face or someone would beat someone with a cue ball or a lead pipe or stab somebody, or rape somebody. Yeah. It happens. Did you ever get hurt? You know, thankfully I, I didn't. And I had, I had a lot of really, really tense and intense moments. But thankfully, I, I got pretty good at hearing people in, in really stressful moments and finding ways that we could find common ground instead of going the opposite way and resorting to violence. Right. Because you didn't want to fight anyone. No, no. And I, I studied, I, I trained with other people that you know, really know how to handle themselves in a fight. Uh -huh. So I, I learned how to protect myself. But I think the more that I did that, the, the more I, I sought other solutions. Hmm. What was the biggest thing you learned about yourself in your seven years there? I would say, I would say the biggest thing that I learned about myself was starting to understand who I am and what's meaningful to me and the kind of life that I want to shape and build and the type of people that I want to, I want to experience life with. Yeah. And it's, it's a constant, it's a constant um, search. And I'm still, I'm still trying to grow in that way. But um, yeah, I would say the biggest thing would be acceptance of who, who I was and the chance to become who, who I want to be. Do you think you feel like you're getting closer and closer to that renewal? Um, I, I think it's it's always a a death and a rebirth, and I think um, 
you know, self-realization, self-actualization, it's, it's a constant process. But uh, I'd say I'm nowhere, nowhere near where I, I hope to be in this life, but I'm, I'm growing, I'm trying. Yeah. You're now a decade removed from your crime, right? Yeah, more than that. 14 years. 14 years. You are uh, 33 now? Yeah. Looking back on this thing four kids did, which is what you were. You were a kid. A young adult, maybe, at best. Yeah. At the heart of it, now that you have distance from it, why do you think you did it? I would say that I wanted things to to change. I wanted things to be different. Um, but I would say there's really, there's no excuse by any means. I would say that I was selfish, that I was misguided, and that I didn't really understand the gravity of what I was doing at the time. Those, uh, all those things make sense, but I want the why. Are you tired of asking yourself that question? Um, you know, I think, I think the human experience is so, is so complex and it's, it's almost like asking you, Sam, why are you who you are? Right. You know, there's, you can touch on, you know, this is, this is a, a part of the truth and this is a part of the truth. And if, if I was to ask you, Sam, who are you? There's so many things that you can say, and there's so many contributing factors that make you who you are. So I think there was a lot of reasons that contributed to, to why I actually did what I did. And I, I really try to explore that in, in my book and you know, in, in my life. Mm. You know, but I think bigger than the why is is what do you do after that? Yeah. You know, so fully accepting that you did do this thing. So now what? Mm. Have you forgiven your father about the refinancing of the homes and the pain he caused you in the aftermath of the divorce? I have. I have. It it took us it took us years, but um we actually got to a point where where I forgave him and I I asked for us to to move forward, uh, not as business partners in any, any kind of way, but to just be father and son. And from that from that place, we've we've continued to to grow and develop. And yeah, you know, I really respect him for for who he is, and he's still he's still a guiding um, force and mentor in my life. Right. But really now we, we get along as father and son and just as people, you know, I, I understand him for who he is. This may sound silly, but when you guys are having like a family dinner, is it brought up anymore? No, no. So throughout prison, you know, of the s six years that I ended up doing actually behind prison walls, every week I had a visit from a family member or friend so 
in the course of six years, I literally spent, if you add up all the days, I spent one year in the visitation room. And that's anywhere from four to eight hours in a day with no TV, no distractions. All you're doing is, is talking and conversing and getting to know each other. So that, that gave us a lot of opportunity to, to really heal together and to move past it together. You had a whole year of that. Yeah. In total. In total. But so spanned out over right. six years. So you were less alone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the core of what I'm hearing and that we've been talking about for uh, almost uh, more than an hour now is that one of the main reasons you did this thing is that you were looking for some sort of connection with another person, even if it meant connecting with three buffoons doing a silly heist at the time it was a thing where you wanted someone to feel close to and i guess you know 14 years removed do you feel like you're getting better at connecting with people in a way that makes you feel good and that feels meaningful you know that's it's really interesting that you bring it up i i think that when we when we share the truth of who we are, that that opens us up to building authentic connections with other people. Um, and through that connection, I find we heal through relationship. Mm. So in that connection, it's actually healing. And through that, I, I think that's where we find happiness. Do you think the four of you could ever heal and become friends again? I think we can... I think we've all healed in our own ways and kind of moved past it, but I don't, I don't see us going and grabbing drinks anytime soon. No drinks. No drinks. But wouldn't that be the ultimate form of, of moving on? I think so. But um, yeah, I guess we... Am I being too idealistic here? No, no. I, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think the more connected all of us can be, the better. Um, yeah, I guess I would, I would like to connect with them in that way, but I think we've kind of grown our own separate ways. Do you want that? Um, no, no. You don't want them? I want them to be happy. I want them to feel connection and love in their lives. Right. But, um. Is it too much because it reminds you of a past pain? I think, I think if... Like that's what that's what binds us is is this this past that we shared. So if we could really connect on who they are now and what they're doing, then yeah, I think that would be that would be amazing. But I guess we just haven't taken the opportunity, <laughs> and I don't see us taking the opportunity uh, because each each one of us live in different parts of the country. Or for Spencer's sake, he lives in Columbia, uh, the country. So everyone's really spread out. But um, yeah, in an idealistic way, that would be beautiful. And I think we've all come to peace with with things and we all wish each other the best. But I'd say that's where we're at. You know, the last thing I want to ask you is that you've gone through so much. You've done so many, um, you know, 
you as a teenager where your where your parents split up and your best friend passes away in a car accident, then you become closer with these friends from high school and you commit a crime that uh, is like a national news story. You spend six years in prison. Leaving prison, there is a movie made about your life. That movie is now in theaters across the country. You know, you have written a book. You have moved on and, and continued living your life. And I guess I'm not a particularly spiritual person, though I'd maybe like to be one day. I, I, would, I would beg to differ. I think you are. You may not call it that. <laughs> well, that's you're great. a very conscious and aware person. Well, this... And I would classify that as spiritual. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you may have pinpointed something I'm not even fully aware of. Uh, I, I guess what I want to well, know that's is... the start of awareness. Look, you know, <laughs> I, I could start meditating right now, <laughs> the end of this podcast. I guess the main thing I want to get across is, uh, do you think the things that have happened to you were meant to happen to you? I think that... Everything can work toward the good if we're open to it. I think that starts from similar to pretty much any form of spiritual practice is coming to acceptance of what is. And then from that place of accepting what is, um, yeah, moving forward in, in a positive direction that you want. So at this point... I, I think I would say I'm thankful for the experiences that I've had, you know, albeit really, really challenging and really forced me to take a hard look at myself. But um, yeah, I'm thankful that it's happened this way. But as far as did it happen for a reason? Um, maybe, maybe things don't. I wouldn't say that that straight line of connection. I think it it can be that if you're open to it. But we always have a choice and at any point we can choose to to go in a different direction. And I think if you're open to choices that are are based in healing and growth and expansion of who you are, I I think then yes. But just as easily, we have the power to choose in the opposite direction. Mm. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of people that do that as well. Well, uh, I'm thankful that you chose to come on this show and that <laughs> you were uh, open to talk with me. Well, thank you, Sam. I, I've really enjoyed it. I've really appreciated the, the openness and you inviting me and having this, this talk. So and, thank you. You know, anytime. Chaz Allen, thank you so much. Thanks, Sam.
After a six-year sentence in prison, Alan now works as an author, public speaker, entrepreneur, and life coach. His debut book entitled Evolution, Becoming a Criminal, will drop next week on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and maybe, potentially, your local bookstore. I want to give a special thanks this week to Patrick Coleman and Rebecca Fisher for helping arrange today's episode. To learn more about Chaz, be sure to check out our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Attenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.